everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor Amos Grunendijk. My name is Amos. I'm the teaching pastor here. And before I get started, I want to say something about last Sunday. It was incredible. If you weren't here, uh, we have a tradition that at the end of the year, we do basically an open mic where everybody gets 90 seconds to share about what God has been doing uh, in their life for them over the past year. And I noticed a couple of things uh, that I really want to celebrate. Uh, the first is, is that people were able to see God all over the place uh, in little ways. And I think one of the things we want to do at the Vineyard is realize and see where God is active because he's active all the time if you just have eyes to see it. So we saw him in finding new jobs, in protecting people physically from harm, in recovering from illness. Uh, I, we heard several people say, like, what I really needed this year is to experience love. And I found that here uh, among people who I thought perhaps would reject me for who I was or a reputation I had, but instead they loved me. And that's no small thing. But something else I think that struck me as much is that some of you were willing to stand up in front of a crowd of, you know, 100 people, 120 people, and say, there were times this past year that I was not okay. Uh, one of you said, I'm someone who struggles with depression, and it hasn't been an easy year. And I think that is really core to who we are as the vineyard. We want to be a place where you don't have to check who you really are at the door. We want you to be able to come in with your whole self and be honest about where you are and how you're doing. We don't want you to put on a happy face if you're not happy or an I'm okay face if you're full of pain. Because if you check those things at the door, you're not going to bring them into the presence of God where God wants to speak to those things and touch those places in your life specifically. So uh, last Sunday, we spent time looking back on the year. Of course, uh, with the new year, a lot of people are looking forward to the year that's coming. And of course, what do people do when they're looking forward to the coming year, right? Some of you probably made New Year's resolutions, in fact, 60% of all people make New Year's resolutions, and you can probably guess what the top several New Year's resolutions are. Am I right? Yep. Exercise more, eat less, uh, lose weight. Let's put it up. Here's the top 10. Eat healthier, exercise more, lose weight. Save more, spend less, learn a new skill, quit smoking, read more, get a new job, drink less alcohol. Number 10, spend more time with family and friends. You'll notice something about the percentages on the side. People are very ambitious. 
People weren't, don't just say, I would like to eat healthier or exercise more. They want to do multiple things on that list all at once. Did you guys know that about 60% of people make resolutions, but by February 1st, 80% of people have given up on that resolution? By the end of the year, only 8% have stayed committed. You can look at that stat in a couple of different ways, I suppose. Uh, you put a positive spin on it. If you can make it to February 1st, uh, you're dropping from a 20% chance of success to a 50% chance of success. That's one way to look at it. But uh, I think really the more sober or honest way to look at it is that most of us uh, can't follow through on our goals uh, or resolutions. Let's look, look at that list one more time. I have a theory about why we're so bad at following through on these goals. What do you notice about each one of these goals or resolutions? Hmm? God's not well, God's not first in them. Right. My theory is this. People are trying to change by focusing on behaviors instead of on focusing on their desires or what their heart is aimed toward. Uh, as was just said, like not focusing on the priorities or the why of what we do and how we live. Each one of these things is trying to, you know, work on some kind of behavior modification where you try harder. But um, this month, we're going to be walking through this series called What's Your Why? Because I think if you really want to see your life change, you have to focus on your motivations, on your desires, on what's going on inside. Because let's be honest, you might want to eat less and exercise more, but if you really want to be lazy and eat more, your desire for those things is going to outweigh and win your desire to eat less and exercise more. Whichever desire is stronger is the way that your life and your behaviors will go. So as we look, about, look at, at what your why might be, we're also going to be looking at this, the, some of the whys of our church, why we do the things that we do. And I, I actually think that probably the best place to go is to look at Jesus and his life and figure out what his why was. Like, what was his purpose? How did he order his life? So we're going to open up Matthew chapter 9 today. And uh, before I do that, I'm going to pray for us again. So Holy Spirit, we've invited you to come. We trust that you will. And you'll trust that regardless of uh, our reputation or regardless of what we've done this past week, whether it's things that we are proud of or things that we are ashamed of, that you welcome us here. And so that I, so too, I pray that as I speak, uh, that you would stir in our hearts and do little things to transform us and shape us into yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll be reading primarily from Matthew 9, but you should know that this story is mirrored in Mark 2 and Luke 5. You'll find that in uh, this, the books that are about Jesus. A lot of times things are repeated, and uh, sometimes word for word. So what I've done actually is I've, I've spliced in little pieces of Luke 5 and Mark 2 that I find interesting, that I think will help us uh, really get to what Jesus' 
why is and uh, help us to maybe orient our lives a little bit differently. So here's Matthew 9. It'll be up on the screen. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew. Notice the same name as the guy who wrote this book, not a coincidence, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him, leaving everything behind. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. I think that's significant. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners, uh, and to call them to repentance. That's from Luke or Mark, I don't remember. Then they said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? Jesus replied, Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and they will fast. Fast is like a religious diet, I suppose. Uh, A diet for religious reasons. Verse 16, Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, For the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wine skins so that both are preserved. So in your Bibles, if you have them, there might be a header that splits up those two kind of little segments. One about the call of Matthew and uh, the party that happens at Matthew's house. And the second one about fasting and the wine skins and everything else. I think the two go together. And I'll explain why. And I'm just going to leave you in suspense for now. But I've always been very confused about the wineskin, wine, old wineskin, new wineskin, new cloth, old patch, whatever. Uh, but I think it makes more sense when it's read alongside uh, the story of Jesus and Matthew. But like I said, we'll get to that. Let's go back to the, uh, Matthew 9, verse 11. It says, But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? And when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And so I I actually set off this week to read through the entire New Testament. And like most goals or resolutions, I did not succeed. Lump me in with that 80%. Maybe by the end of the month. Uh, But one of the reasons I set it down is I ran out of time. But the other reason is, as I was reading through Luke, uh, I came on the passage where the Pharisees actually ask Jesus straight up, why are you doing this? So if we can understand Jesus' answer, we will get, hopefully, uh, to the root of his purpose or his mission or his why. And uh, to to kind of explain that, I want to bring up a business principle. Some of you maybe have heard of the golden circle. Uh, There's a TED Talk out there by Simon Sinek who 
um, outlines this golden circle idea. But in talking about business, uh, we, we usually know what a business does. Sometimes we know how they do it, but very rarely do we know why. And his, his premise is, is that the companies who know their why and who broadcast their why are the companies that uh, do the best. And he qualifies it by saying, making money is not a why. Well, it can be a why, but it's not a compelling why. It's not a why that will uh, help cause people to like join you and sacrifice and do things uh, for, for a cause, or like it won't build loyalty to your organization. Uh, for example... And I know that there are some people who use Samsung phones here, but um, this church was sort of founded on iPhones, if you know the pastor who used to be here. <laughs> uh, anyway, so for Apple, Apple in their advertising and in their purpose, at least, or I should say especially with Steve Jobs, always began with why. They would say things like, we believe in challenging the status quo, right? We do things differently. Uh, we want to think differently. The way we challenge the status quo, right, that's the how, is by making products beautifully designed, simple to use, and user-friendly. What do we do? We make computers. Want to buy one? Which is very different than saying, we make good computers. Want to buy one? Uh, the reason that Apple could move from the computer industry to the small electronics industry to the music industry is because it, they were not defined by what they did selling computers. They were defined by why they did it. They wanted to challenge the status quo. And so they revolutionized the music industry. Uh, and they, they changed the way that we uh, carry our electronics and interface with our electronics. But I... I want to make this even more real for you today. And really, I'm just looking for a way to talk about the Eagles on such an important day. <laughs> so um, some of you know Frank. Frank is married to Emily, who is our Vineyard Kids pastor, and she was the one doing announcements. But uh, if you know Frank, you know he's always serving his guts out. He's always helping back in kids. He's in Club 56. He's filling in uh, wherever he's needed. But you will also know that Frank loves the Eagles, so if there's an opportunity to talk about the E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagle, I was just, I had to. Uh, that, was, that was Frank. Uh, you can tell him by his Eagle's sweatshirt if you want to say hello to Frank after the service. Um, anyway, Frank loves the Eagles. Think about that as the center of the circle. How does Frank love the Eagles? Well, uh, he, he would answer, like, I, I, you know, I had a family member who was really into the Eagles. Uh, how does he love the Eagles? Well, there's some internal realities that if you meet Frank on game day and, he's, and it's a big game, he's, he's pretty, like, nervous about it. He's pacing around and he's got this kind of like, oh, man, what's going to happen? But what does Frank do? If you've ever watched football with Frank, you'll never forget the experience. <laughs> what Frank does is he yells loudly at the television. In fact, I've had the unique experience of going to an Eagles game with Frank and watching the Eagles with Frank on TV. And he's actually louder when he's watching TV, <laughs> believe it or not. But don't, don't bother trying to watch football with, with Frank unless you are too into the game because he's not going to like, he's going to pretend you're not there unless you're, you're tuned in. 
But Frank is, is motivated by his love for the Eagles. You might ask Frank, why do you love the Eagles? And he might tell you a story about how he came to love the Eagles and root for the Eagles. But it's really about this thing in his heart. And that is what each of our whys is defined by. What is it that we love? And so when the Pharisees ask Jesus, why do you eat with such scum? Jesus gives an answer. And this is his answer. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. So often when Jesus answers a question, you must wonder to yourself, is Jesus answering a different question than was asked? Because this is a little confusing. But I think what Jesus is saying is, like any good doctor, a doctor does not exist for his own self. He, a good doctor doesn't work for the paycheck. A good doctor doesn't work for his glory or his reputation or his image. A good doctor lives for people outside of himself, for people who need him or her, for people that are sick. A doctor exists not for themselves, but for the other. That gets pretty close, I think, to why Jesus does what he does. And in this case, why Jesus is eating with uh, a tax collector and his friends, even though it irritates the Pharisees deeply. Let's, uh, we'll talk about the Pharisees more in just a second, but let's keep going. Jesus says a second thing in answering the question why. He says, now, go and learn the meaning of this scripture. Pharisees, I'm giving you some homework. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. This is from the Old Testament. They would have known the scripture. Um, Jesus is, is pointing out to them that though they know it, it has not defined them. It has not become uh, internalized. It has not become their motivation. God says to his people, I want you to show mercy not offer sacrifices. Well, let me explain first a little bit about what that second part of the phrase means. Why not offer sacrifices? Because when you hear sacrifice, you probably actually think about something internal. Like when you sacrifice, you feel like this internal pain of not having the thing that you want. But when Jesus says sacrifices here, he's actually talking about a whole religious system that was active at the time that had not so much to do about an internal reality, but about... Um, doing things in a public arena that you would uh, perform, ritual sacrifices, animal sacrifices, that would then religiously make you okay to be in the presence of God and other people. And it had been pretty skewed to this point. The roots of it were in the Old Testament, but by this time, there had been this whole uh, monetary system of exchange and business and the, the religious people were ripping off the common people, and it, and it got pretty ugly. But the Pharisees uh, were at the heart of this, and they didn't just apply this paradigm to offering sacrifices on the altar at the temple. They applied this to a whole lifestyle. And the, the lifestyle included things as crazy as don't walk too many steps on your Sabbath on Saturday. Uh, you know, they, they created these walls around behavior 
to try to keep people living a certain way. The main problem with the Pharisees and the way that they lived is that they were focused on the external. And you might be thinking, what do the Pharisees have to do with me today? Well, I don't want to be too tough on the Pharisees because I think I myself am a recovering Pharisee. And if you were raised in a church, you too are probably a recovering Pharisee. Because most of us who were raised in the church, and I won't want to say all of us, but I think most of us uh, were told to focus on external behaviors. But what if, what if you weren't raised in a church? Is there still a message for you in this? Well, I think, yeah, because at its root, this focus on external behaviors is all about image. And we live in a culture that's all about image. So if you're someone who's preoccupied with your image and how people perceive you, and if that becomes an overriding motivation, uh, instead of, like, what am I really like on the inside? What are my uh, passions? What is my heart oriented toward? Uh, then, then this warning to the Pharisees is for you as well. The idea here is that the Pharisees, it seemed, were very insecure because they were image-based, right? They were very insecure about who they were seen with and who they associated with because it would make them religiously unclean or religiously unfit, externally, um, you know, made dirty because of an association with people with bad reputations that were not well-loved. And tax collectors were not well-loved. If you can imagine, uh, you know, rewinding like 300 years, the tax collectors worked for the Roman government, just as if here in this country, in the middle of a revolution, uh, somebody had allegiances to the English crown, and they were collecting taxes for the English crown. Well, you might just throw them in a river and all their tea besides, right? Like, no love for tax collectors, politically or religiously, because of their association with this, in this case, this pagan Roman occupying power. Jesus is saying, I'm not interested in the external sacrifices you're making. And he says this actually over and over again. What I care about, I want you to show mercy. And what is mercy? You can't fake mercy. Mercy is actually about your internal realities, about your heart, about your why. Jesus is saying, go home, study that some more, figure out the meaning. I'm, in, I'm concerned about the heart. So keeping with the New Year's resolution idea, I put up some uh, Pharisee New Year's resolutions to kind of help this hit home a little bit. Uh, and this, this is jarring to me even a little bit. But if you can imagine a Pharisee sitting down and making 10 New Year's resolutions, it would probably look something like this, right? Don't look at porn. Don't gossip. Read my Bible more. Pray more. Go to church more. Be nicer to my spouse. Be nicer to my coworkers. Be nicer to my neighbors. Be less political on Facebook. And uh, tied for 10th, eat more bacon and eat more kale. <laughs> Not sure why they were thinking about that. Anyway. I made those up, <laughs> if you couldn't tell. Here's the idea. Like, this is a list of all good things. Like, who doesn't want a life that 
has that list uh, as part of their story, as part of their behavior. But it's not going to do you any good to simply try harder or be nicer if the heart hasn't been transformed. If you haven't been given a new heart, if your desires aren't toward the outsider, toward your neighbor, toward your spouse. If you don't love kale, you're probably not going to eat more kale. Um, If you really love stirring things up on Facebook and and projecting your political agenda, you're probably going to keep doing that on Facebook. If you love yourself, the idea of, of expressing kindness to people who are near you or in proximity to you, it's, it's only going to work as long as you're having a good day. What happens when you have a bad day? Jesus is concerned with the very center of who you are. Yeah, I mean, a life oriented to Jesus is going to cause some things, some behaviors, some external realities to change. But you can change the external realities without, without ever getting to the heart. You can go to church your whole life and never make Jesus your why. You can go to church every week. You can read your Bible every day and not have your heart oriented toward Jesus and his love. So what's your why? Jesus says a third thing. He says, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners to repentance. I think there's two things going on in this phrase. Uh, The first is that Jesus is not saying, Pharisees, you're righteous, you're healthy, you don't need me, so I'm going to spend my time over here with people who do need me, right? Like tax collectors, people like Matthew. Jesus is saying something different than that. He's saying... Uh, the real problem with you Pharisees is your pride. You think you can hold your life together. You think you're part of that 8% who can, you know, clean up your life. You think that you don't need me. And this is, this is something that anybody who's following Jesus, I think, is at risk for. Because when Jesus comes into your life, like I said, some behaviors start to change, but then you start to take credit for them. <laughs> You're filled with pride and ego and, and, you know, maybe some things break your way at work and you, you get a raise and you buy a house and all of a sudden you're taking credit for all the good things that are happening instead of, like we did last week with the God stories, giving God credit for all the good things that are happening for us. Jesus is saying the, the tax collectors... They know they need me. They know that they actually can't do very well if they just try harder. They know they need a new heart. They have realized they are self-aware enough to know that they are spiritually bankrupt and don't have the willpower to uh, live the life that they want or hope for. But the second thing I want to point out here is that the sinners, and really Jesus is calling everyone, right, in light of what I just said, are being called to repentance. Now, what does repentance mean? Well, 
Sometimes when we hear the word repentance, what do we, what do we think of? Well, we think of the Pharisee top 10, right? We take moral categories and think, okay, if I repent, it means that I say I'm sorry for doing bad things and I stop doing them. Maybe that's part of repentance. But do you see how that kind of repentance is actually only an external repentance? Do you remember what I said about Jesus caring about the internal and showing mercy more than the external and the sacrifices and the image? When you hear repentance, and this really struck me this week, we should be thinking in terms of the kingdom. When we hear repentance, it's actually about God's kingdom. What is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is where Jesus is king, where he rules, where things are done uh, according to his will and his desire. And what he desires is our flourishing and he desires relationship with us. And so when he commands us to do things like, you know, don't look at women lustfully, uh, you know, just go to number one on that Pharisee list, right? Like he's actually, he's pointing us toward the heart of what we desire. And can, can you in God's kingdom imagine a world where none of us struggle with sexual addiction? Like, when, where Jesus is king, the desires change. Uh, justice comes externally, but goodness starts flowing out from the inside as well. Uh, to get an idea of what kingdom repentance looks like, let's just look at Matthew once again, right? So Matthew's sitting as, at his tax collector booth. Jesus calls him to be a disciple and in doing so, Matthew changes his why. His why do I live changes from, I'm going to make a few extra bucks by collecting taxes, maybe I'll shave some off the top for myself, to Jesus is my why. And so what does he do? How does he do it? He leaves everything and follows Jesus. But then what does he do? He throws a party with Jesus as his guest of honor. Jesus becomes the center of his world. And he invites a bunch of his friends to this party. And I think there's like a natural thing that happens when you love something that you want to invite other people into that love. And this is another place where I think the church can get a little wonky or haywire because uh, the church will use this word evangelism and often the word evangelism comes with a lot of negative uh, connotations, which is probably deserved, because evangelism is often turning people into projects, trying to um, get them, you know, into our club. Or, uh, well, let's just, let's, can you put up those questions that I have on, I don't know if it's the next slide or the next one. I'm afraid that sometimes instead of pointing people to Jesus and inviting people to Jesus, we're inviting people into better behavior. How might you tell? Are you, do you start with how they're acting or what they believe? Or do you start with Jesus and what he means to you, right? How can you tell if you're, you're inviting people into a moral uh, ethic which, again, moral ethics are good, or into a kingdom kind of repentance? Are you employing shame or judgment or dignity and love? 
You can imagine that with Matthew and with this party that Matthew throws with all his friends, Jesus didn't come to Matthew and say, you should really stop collecting taxes for the Roman government. You should really start being a better person. He didn't do that. First, there is an expression of dignity. You, Matthew, who the Pharisees won't even come near, I'm inviting you to, in, to come into my inner circle, into my close-knit group of friends. I'm inviting you. So the, the, the beginning is with love, not with shame or judgment. And finally, uh, when, when you're engaging with people, are you impatient? There's this really interesting passage in, uh, in one of Peter's letters where people are asking the question, well, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because, you know, we see all this crappy stuff happening and we've been promised that when Jesus comes back, it's all going to be made new and we won't have to deal with all the suffering anymore. And Peter answers the question by saying, don't you know that God desires that none would perish? And we hear that and we think, oh man, people are perishing. We better make sure that nobody's perishing. So hurry up and get to saving people. But we don't keep reading and hear God say, because I am patient. I, I haven't come back yet because I am patient. And so are you patient with people? Because we're all at these variety of places in our spiritual journey. And some of us are moving toward Jesus and some of us are moving away from Jesus. But only Jesus can actually give us a new heart. Only Jesus can give us a new why. Only Jesus can turn our hearts, can, can draw us to repentance, to change that center and core of who we are. Now, I want to I take a look kind of at this why, what's our why at the church level here quick a second. And I want you to hear that I want our why to be our center, to be Jesus, and the way that he loves people. How are we going to do that? I want deeply and badly to create space for the Matthews of the world and all his friends, just as Jesus did. A place that is free from shame and free from judgment where people can actually engage Jesus with their whole selves so that they don't feel like they have to check something at the door, right? I want people to bring their doubts and to bring their struggles and to bring their pain and to bring their screw-ups, not to pretend like it's all okay. Now, what do we do to try to make that happen? Well, I'm going to talk through a couple of things just real briefly, but my hope is, is that when we talk about the what, that you don't lose sight of the why. Because the what we do, like that's the model. That's what we're trying to do to accomplish the why of Jesus' mission. That's, we want to love fundamentally like Jesus. And so if you go out from here and somebody asks, well, I hear you go to church. What do you like about it? I hope you don't say, because I like the style of music, because I, you know, I, I like the, the pastors or, you know, they have pretty good kids ministries. I hope those things are true at some level, but I hope that it goes deeper, that you're able to say, well, what I love is that they love Jesus 
and they want to love like him. And so because they do that, they, they try to do things in a particular way. And, and so in that, we lean toward the unchurched or the outsider or you know, people who have maybe not been in church ever or maybe haven't been in church 10 years. We want to make sure that what we're doing creates space for everybody who needs to encounter Jesus, for everybody who needs a doctor. And so let me just say a little bit about language. I don't mean like I'm going to swear or not swear from the stage, like use bad words. What I mean is, maybe you've noticed, when I talk, I will try never to use religious jargon or words uh, that wouldn't be used commonly outside of a church. And when I do, I try to define those things quickly and briefly so that it, it does make sense. So when I said God's kingdom, some of you probably knew what I meant. But I went on to say, like, this is where God's will is done perfectly because I know that not everybody has probably heard that term before, even though it's a term we use here a lot. And if you want to make somebody feel dumb or ashamed, start using jargon. Have you ever gone to a doctor, right, who instead of showing you love and concern and attention, uh, he uses words that you don't understand to maybe make himself look good? Well, how do you feel? You feel dumb. Like the doctors who actually love their patients will speak with language that makes sense to their patients. And so if you love people, just become aware, even for yourselves, what words you use in describing your church experiences or Jesus experiences. And don't assume that people know what those words mean. Okay? The way that we use scripture, um, you'll notice that I try really hard to only speak out of one passage. And a lot of pastors don't do that. They'll like list 12 different passages or they'll go like, they'll go really deep into commentaries. And I'm not saying that we can't go deep here. I mean, I try to go pretty deep. But I'm, I'm going to try to skip, st stick to one scripture because if I jump around, you're going to get confused. If I were to read to you the Silmarillion, which is uh, like the, the preamble to the Lord of the Rings, I know that I've lost some of you. <laughs> but just imagine if I was reading from the Silmarillion. Everybody I talk to who has read the Silmarillion with every once in a while, rare occasion, they're like, yeah, I tried that. I was so confused. I had no idea what was going on. It's because there's references to all these people that you've never heard of. And the Bible can be very confusing. Did you know that there was a guy named Abram, but then he was called Abraham, who married a girl named Sarai, but then she changed her name to Sarah? It's kind of like how Fionor, it's kind of like in Lord of the Rings, how you can be talking about Aragorn or Arendil or uh, Strider, and you're all talking about the same person. Okay, I lost y'all. <laughs> Some people are following. But anyway, that's, that's, that's one of the ways that I always think about the scripture. And I came in actually thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool if I just listed all the scriptures that Jesus talks about as motivations? And I'm like, I can't do that. That actually violates the why. So that's why I do that. We pick music. Uh, and in the vineyard, we write music that has a lean toward people who don't know all the religious jargon or language. So, man, guys, I love hymns. You know, the old school hymns. I grew up in an old school church. And, not, you know, it makes me feel nostalgic when I sing 
the doxology or, you know, a variety of others. But in the vineyard, we try to keep, we don't sing a lot of hymns because the hymns use a lot of really dense, like theologically charged language. And if you don't know what the words mean, you're lost. This lean toward the outsider means that even stylistically, we don't always sing songs the way that I would prefer. We're trying to sing songs in a way that can help people engage. I'm not saying that I don't love you or care about you. I do love you and I care about you. But if we're going to love like Jesus, we have to love more than ourselves. Jesus existed for people outside of himself. The church is this really weird institution, maybe unique in the world. The church exists for its non-members. To be a partner or a member of this church means that our why is to love like Jesus. Jesus is our why, and he loves people who are not already part of his community. He goes out of his way, even when it makes that religious community, the Jewish community, the Jewish leaders mad and angry and frustrated. He loves the tax collector so much that he's willing to offend the Pharisees. Does he love the Pharisees? Yes, he does. He pleads with the Pharisees, go back and study your scriptures. You love the scriptures. Go back and study the scriptures. You'll see that I desire mercy, not the external. Go through the motions. Say the right things. Show up to the right groups. I'm after your heart. Even the way that our service flows, um, we actually switched having most of our songs at the beginning to most of our songs at the end because we realized that if you don't have a church background to walk into a room where everybody's singing words off of a wall is like kind of strange. And it's maybe a little bit less strange if, if I, I can talk to you for a few minutes first and like maybe you come to trust something that I've said. Maybe God stirred something in you. And then we sing and create space for God to do more. Like the seeds that we plant at the beginning of the service, we hope that God... See, I just used a funny Christian word. <laughs> Seeds that we planted at the beginning of the service, right? It's so easy to do. But the idea is, is that there's a better chance of engagement for the newcomer if worship is at the end. You know what we found, though? When we moved worship to the end, everybody engaged better. Did you notice that? And I think it was in part just because uh, the room was fuller. And, and so... The room was fuller, and so it was better for everybody, but it was better for, for you, too, because, like, everybody was here for it. And it gives time for what the Bible says to kind of sink into our hearts, and when we do worship at the end, God can speak to us at the end. When we sing at the end, there's, there's space to kind of let it sink in. And then, like, all of our, a lot of our serve teams are always thinking about the newcomer. Like, yes, kids' ministry is designed to help uh, our children, you know, people who come to this church regularly, grow up to be more like Jesus and love the things he loves. But we're always thinking about, what about the person who comes for the first time? What's going to make them feel like they can trust us with their kids? 
when someone shows up for the first time, yeah, we serve coffee for everybody. But what, what's the experience of the newcomer going to be like? Because we think that Jesus cares deeply about that. It takes great bravery to walk into a church for the first time. And we want to meet that courage with welcome. Just as Jesus did. Okay, we're going to land this. That second part, Jesus says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spoiling the wine and ruining the skins. Jesus is doing something new. Something so radically new that the old ideas about how to earn God's favor are being blown up. The way of the Pharisees is being subverted. It's bursting because God's new thing, God's new kingdom is not about external behaviors, but about your internal why. He wants to replace your why, whatever it is, whatever it was, with him. And that comes through his love and his grace. It comes to us as a gift, not as something that we earn. This is, a, this is like a major paradigm shift. The, the new wine cannot be hold, held by the old wineskins that will burst. It's like when, when uh, Einstein came up with the theory of relativity. Like, it's not, it's not that when you dropped things, they started falling up, but we had to question everything about why things fall and how physics works. This is a paradigm shift that Jesus is bringing and it's turning everything you thought that was true on your head, on its head. You thought Jesus, you thought God was upset with you, didn't want to have anything to do with you until you cleaned up your life. No. He loves you. And he doesn't choose you because you're so great or because you're so beautiful. He chooses you to make you beautiful. His heart is bigger than you thought. His grace is more magnificent than you thought. He came for the sick. He's not just a physician. He's the great physician. Not just the physician for the world, but your physician. That's why he came. Because his heart was so big. And out of that, he engages with Matthew, who has a meal. And this meal symbolizes something. It's symbolic of a friendship that Jesus has and will have with Matthew. And so now as the worship team comes up, um, we too are going to have a symbolic meal with Jesus. What some people call Mass or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or Communion, we're now going to participate in. Um, you'll notice that in the back corners of this room and here in the front on the table, there's bread and there's juice. And we do this because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered together his closest friends, Matthew included, and he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, you remember why I came? I came so that my body would be broken for you on the cross. And he did something similar with the cup. You don't want to know why I came? I came to shed my blood 
for you. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And Jesus, what we remember when we take communion, is that Jesus became the sick for us. Not just the doctor, but he took on our sickness. He took on our shame, and he took on our sin. And because he did that, we can have friendship with God. We can eat with him. We can have a meal with him. And so I want to invite you to stand. And I want you to uh, come, if you want, with hands of faith to take a cup and to take a, a cracker or a piece of bread and to go back to your seats and we'll be taking it all together uh, here in just a minute. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.